Hi there, welcome to or welcome back to the Shift Control Podcast. My name is Paul McAnallen. Um, thanks for joining me on this, the 21st episode of the 2020 series of podcasts. Joining me this week is Zenda Lynch, Head of Enterprise at Munster Rugby. I first encountered Enda when he was Head of Sponsorship at O2. This is going back maybe nine years ago and I was working with a GAA property trying to secure sponsorship. Enda was one of the few, if not the only person to give me kind of time of day and to listen to the the pitch as it were. Um, He's uh, kind of an expert in sponsorship and sports marketing and it's a it's great to get him on the show talking about a subject that that I, I still uh, look upon very fondly um, and the talks in the podcast about the perspective from the brands talking about his time at O2 and now at Munster um, one of the top rugby brands in the world um, certainly um, very prominent on across these two islands and so we talked a lot about the different landscape at Thoman Park when when he, he arrived at the organisation to now the high performance spirit they have across the, the body at Thoman Park and also the challenges that lie ahead um, for rugby, for sport and the importance of sport in the context of this particular climate we find ourselves in and how we're going to move quickly out of that climate when that time arrives. Thank you very much for for coming along and I hope you enjoy this episode um, as much as I enjoyed recording it. And uh, good afternoon again. How are you? Paul, great to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. No, good good to get chatting. Um, I'm thinking, cast my mind back to now to when we first spoke. You were head of sponsorship at O2. Mm-hmm. Ten years. Yeah, ago. that's uh, 2008, 2008, 2012, and I think you and I spoke about halfway through that. So about 2010. That's right. How's it been? How's it been at Munster? It's been really challenging um, uh, because you know we're a club that thrives on our community and our supporters being there behind us and being through the gates with us, and there's no live sport doing that at the moment, but. Thanks to the amazing work of our colleagues in the RFU and our own COVID team, uh, led by Philip Quinn, our uh, COO, we have um, a really clear way of getting games on, getting people into the bubble, protecting our players, protecting our staff. We're playing the games. We've had a really low number of cases and we've been able to manage them really well. So from that perspective, to see games on and being able to deliver them is absolutely phenomenal. Um, but, you know, the sooner we can get back to bums on seats, to people in the door, the better. Um, overall, though, I mean, uh, we have a great new CEO, Ian Flanagan in, um, ex-Leicester City Soccer, um, Dave Kavanagh, uh, the previous head of commercial for the um, uh, Six Nations has joined us as our head of commercial. Um, and, you know, there's some really great people in the organisation already, so... People-wise, great organisation. Player-wise, great organisation. Results-wise so far this year, absolutely brilliant. And just hope now they can get bums on seats before the season's out, but who knows? When when you left O2, and one of my memories was that at the time I was working 
with the GAA property trying to get a sponsorship deal over the line. And you were, one of, right. the, you, you were one of the few people that were courteous enough to, to call me back. Um, what was the, at that time, um, you know, I guess O2 had quite a few properties in across the island of Ireland. What was the big attraction to head over to Tommen Park? Um, yeah, look, O2 was the, you know, with the best toys, uh, we had the O2, which was the biggest, um, by a long shot, the biggest naming rights property in the country at that point in time. Uh, we had the Irish rugby team and I'd had the best fun working on that property with my colleagues, Jill Keane and Joanne Donlan and Tanya Townsend and Johnny Cahill and Damien Devaney, who've all now all gone on to bigger and greater things. But we, uh, with Porrick Power in the air few, we had wonderful fun with that property. We won all kinds of awards and everything on the back of it. But I had, I, I always come into any role going, you know, there, there's a set time that I think I can give my energy to it before I feel that I, I begin to run out of role creatively and energy-wise. Um, and that's usually four or five years in a row. But on top of that, um, I'm a monster man. I'm a truly man. I played rugby. Um, I had gone to Munster Games. Um, I had travelled all over the place at Munster through the, the Halcyon days when they were winning games. And, you know, even when they weren't, I was still going out to places. And I just, it was like a dream job. It's like I get to work in sport, which I adore. I get to work in the commercial side of sport, which I already do through sponsorship. Um, I get to move down closer to mom and dad. And dad at the time was uh, unwell. So there was a, a number of factors. But at the end of the day, that press there that was just a pull too great to did it did it take you long to acclimatize to life on the dark side working for the property um yeah it did um i was god knows you know in most roles you you'll get into it in three to four months in Munster Rugby, and it's something that I learned as I went along, and I, I, I give this to my colleagues who came after me in the same role, it takes you a full year to figure out how everything works because you have to go through a full season, all the games, any playoffs, uh, season ticketing, sponsorship renewals, all of the bits of the bubble. You have a full year before you get your head around them, and it's at that point that you go, okay, now I know how everything works. Now I know what we need to amend, reflect, change, uh, get some external advice in. And you can't really do that. Like everybody will be shouting at you from the day you come in going, what about this? What about that? You're the new face for you, these ideas, but you've got to take your time. Uh, and it took me a year to, to really acclimatize into Munster Rugby. But come uh, the end of the summer, um, at the end of my first full season, um, I, I, you know, we'd drawn up a very clear plan how we wanted to go commercially and we had got through some hard times uh, with the departure of our sponsor Toyota and all that kind of stuff. So then we knew we had a clear path on, on how we wanted to get going. Did you come in at the start of the season? Was it pre-season? No, I came in uh, with, I came in at the end of March. Uh, so I was coming in just before the end of the season. Now the first three games that I was working with Munster Rugby weekend one. We lost to Leinster at home in the, what was then the Rabo Direct Pro 12. The following weekend, we lost to Ulster in the European Cup quarterfinal in Thoman Park, which was a, a really big uh, result for Ulster. Um, 
especially away from home and, and down in Town Park. The following week, we played Glasgow, and I think we lost that one as well. Um, and then season t- tickets went on sale at the same time. Um, and my first child was born uh, the week between the first and second game between the Leinster and the Ulster game. And I had to move down to Cork. That's not ideal timing at all. So whenever you arrived, Toyota were coming to the conclusion of quite a lengthy relationship with Munster. Yeah, they'd been with us uh, 2000 and I believe it was 2005, they're about 2006 through to 2012 um, and uh, actually slightly before that. And they had enjoyed huge success with us, had been through the European campaigns with us. Um, had great plans, but uh, this was 2012, so the recession had really kicked everyone in the stomach, um, and a lot of businesses were contracting, and understandably so. And uh, and and Toyota just had to say, look, the, the market isn't there to sustain uh, to sustain the sponsorship right now. We're really sorry. We'd love to keep on going. We have some great plans, but uh, it forced us into the market at a, a tough time. But Bank of Ireland. Um, Bank of Ireland saw saw the value in in coming on board. They had Leinster, so they knew how the, the provincial model worked, um, and and fairly quickly we were able to convince them through uh, a bit of kind of a, an econometric type piece of work around the value of a sponsorship, um, and that was something my 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 two bosses in in O2, Johnny Cahill and uh, who's now the CMO for Heineken USA and Damien Devanu, who was one of the best marketeers Ireland's ever produced. And they both wanted to understand the value of sponsorship in granular detail. Um, and we did it with the Irish rugby team and with O2, the O2, um, to the point that we were able to provide that model to our Spanish counterparts, Telefonica, who allowed us to renew the Irish rugby team sponsorship at the time. So it had a fairly good model that I was able to adapt bring to Bank of Ireland um, and show that there, you know, despite everything people were saying about, you know, the team performance and all that, there is an inherent phenomenal value in Munster, the brand, Munster, its community, its supporters. And we were able to demonstrate that value. So we were fortunate that Bank of Ireland came on. And so we, in fact, we didn't miss a beat. Uh, there was never a day without the without a brand on the front of the jersey, which, you know, would was of primary importance. Uh, that that's really really an, a, such an important thing for your property and your brand that level of consistency and continuity and the support gives the supporters i guess confidence it gives your other commercial partners confidence and it would, i'm sure it would have given you confidence too having just arrived at, at the club but go, going back to the um you took your experience from o2 to fully present to bank of ireland what sponsorship value looked like can you talk a little bit about that? What, how, you, how you would have seen it then and how you would have presented value to... to sure. Um, look, uh, um, imagine, if you will, um, you know, there, there was once upon a time in, in the sponsorship world where value was awareness. And awareness really is, is fine if you're a, a new brand or an up-and-coming brand or... You want to establish yourself in a particular uh, segment or you want to dominate a particular um, vertical or category. But um, when you get into, you know, the major sponsorships like the national ones and and the big provincial uh, professional rugby ones, 
you've got to look way, way, way beyond that. And for us, that was understanding a couple of things. One, uh, it, it, it came back to a couple of principles. Share of voice is share of market. Um, and, and, you know, for most major brands, um, you know, your, your share of voice generally is within a couple of percentage points of your share of market. Um, and so we, we had that understanding. I was fortunate in telco in that, um, and I'd worked in O2 and Digicel and, and Vodafone before that. So I understood the value of churn um, as part of the economic model for, for telcos. And it's a, it's, it's a part for all, you know, major brands, um, but especially for telco. And it's, it's one of the most measured um, metrics uh, in, in the organization. So, you know, if you are able to identify those who engage with your sponsorship, and I'll come back to that in a second, versus those who don't engage with your sponsorship, and then you're able to draw uh, what the churn rate is for those who are engaged with your sponsorship versus those who are not, then you begin to see the value that the sponsorship is bringing because they feel closer and more connected. And all the stuff you, you talk about, you now have a measurable unit for it. Um, and that's why in, in O2, uh, 10 years ago, we or 11 years ago, and it's actually the Christmas of 2008, the brief was written in November 2008, um, and we presented our first tissue session back from the agency, McConnell's at the time, was in December 2008, so that's 12 years ago. And it was all about connecting people to the jersey, but capturing data as a measurable unit, not just data to email them out and go, hey, we know about you, but data as a measurable unit. And by that, I mean, for every O2 customer who signed up through a sponsorship activation, we knew they were engaged enough with the sponsorship to want to sign up to it. So we could then differentiate their churn rate versus the churn rate of those who weren't involved uh, in, in the sponsorship. Um, we then applied that model across the O2 as well. And the difference was significant. You know, it was about, you know, blended between the two properties, it was about 20 odd percent of a difference between standard churn and churn for those people attached to those properties. Um, and, you know, there is a straight value when you know that 20% less people are leaving because the only difference between, they're on the same tariffs and the same network, the only difference is they are not, sorry, they are engaged with your sponsorship. So then you look at that, then you look at um, other values and, and it's, you know, businesses will spend, large businesses will spend on hospitality, entertainment, employee engagement, and they have a certain budget for that. But if you look at the value a, a good sponsorship property brings in the door in terms of the assets, it allows you to completely reduce the value that you're spending elsewhere. So for every, you know, half a million you're spending on a sponsorship of 300 or 200,000, there might be 20 or 30,000 that is a, a cost offset. So the sponsorship is actually costing the business less than the price tag. And you're getting better benefits that you have a closer attachment to. Um, the, one of the bravest things we did um, was around the Six Nations in 2010, we went dark on all, non, uh, cons on all, on all consumer advertising that was not sponsorship related. We just, we had, we budget challenges and we, we stripped out all of our consumer activity outside of the sponsorship for a period of months around the Six Nations. And our share of market did not drop in those months. Our share of voice 
media uh, done by the media agencies did not drop in those months. So you're then able to go, well, if you, and we permanently then reduced the advertising and the marketing budget for other areas and began to merge them with the sponsorship. So we launched broadband, uh, broadband product through the sponsorship. We launched, um, we, we upweighted, significantly upweighted our loyalty program through sponsorship. All these types of things, we launched our money card through sponsorship, the O2 money card at the time. All these things were launched. So instead of a separate budget, they were utilized through the sponsorship channel. So you're able to A, reduce your budget down for the business, but B, utilize the assets you have and retain your share of voice. And when that happens, then you go, okay, you've, your sponsorship is retaining your share of voice. So there's a cost deferral there. You have uh, the, the, the standard um, churn, as I mentioned, you have new product. So for new product launches, for example, um, that there might be an uptick of 10% versus the similar type product 12 months earlier, based on the fact that there's a sponsorship activation attached to it. So you derive your value from that. Um, and then there was another one, which was new customer acquisition. Um, when we did the O2 piece on the back of the jersey, um, we were very clear that um, Green, oh, the color of your network is not the color of your support. So Vodafone is red, O2 is blue, uh, three was green, uh, and air was orange. And it's like, no, that doesn't matter. You're an Irish supporter. So anybody could get their name on the back of the Irish jersey in this activation we had. So of the thousands, uh, tens of thousands of people who applied through the first year in 2009, approximately 12, 12 and a half percent of them were off net customers. Oh. But to be registered, you had to tick for to allow us to communicate with you, all GDPR compliant and all that kind of stuff. So we then were able to contact 12,500 customers who weren't ours, our off-net customers. And by the end of that year, we had accrued enough new sponsors. The only way we had contacted them and found them and, and worked with them was through the data I had fed into the acquisition team. And that those customers alone paid for the sponsorship in its entirety, the rugby sponsorship on its own. Wow. So That's when you break this case study, you know, when yeah, it, was, it was great fun. And the thing is when you break down the data available to you, and I say this to a lot of people who know work in sponsorship and are coming up through the, the ranks, look at all the available, look at the whole board as Jed Bartlett said in the, in, um, in the West Wing, look at the whole board. Look at every piece of data that's available to you. And can you apply that to sponsorship and can you measure it? Don't just go with the, the easy options because it may, it's a chunky bit of work, but for three months of hell, you're, you're sitting back then going, this is self-fulfilling. It proves that it's worth it. It proves it to the business. Everybody begins to buy in. They want to do more of them. They want to look at other options. They want to expend the, extend the contract and take in more rights then you're into gravy time. It's like, this is brilliant. And that's what it was with, with O2 and the Irish Rugby Union. And to be fair to Porrick Power, some of the ideas we came up with were bonkers at the time for a brand, but they were brave enough to go, yeah, we see why you're doing this. We see how you're going to measure this. We're going to, we, we see that we can look at whether this is successful or not, which allows them to put a value on the sponsorship as a whole. Uh, and we worked hand, cap in hand, or sorry, hand in hand. And it was a really enjoyable relationship. Brought that to, you know, the same thing around acquisition, retention, 
um, uh, cost reduction, share of voice reduction, or share of, share of um, market spend reduction versus share of voice to share market. You put those into a type of a waterfall type structure and you go money out, money in through all these, and the money in, when you add them all up, they're great. They're at a higher level than the money out. And, you know, if you do a bit of research, you'll understand the banking model. You'll be able to get some rough numbers which allow you to understand that, that you know, what is a new customer worth? What is a new mortgage worth? What is a new current account to a student worth? What is the cost of somebody leaving to go for a mortgage? As you're able to look at that and go, okay, present, you know, you'll present a, an idea, an activation around mortgages or whatever the product is. And you're able to go, roughly, give or take, that's worth euro to you per customer. Um, and, and therefore, if you ran this activation and you uh, won 180 new customers, you're paying for one-fifth of the sponsorship or whatever the numbers are, you know. And that's what sponsors need to see. They need to see the rights holder understand their business. They need to see the rights holder engage with them on their business so that it's not just brand on jersey, thanks for the money. Um, and then that allows you to be able to go back to them two, three, four, five years later and go, well, how do we get on versus the model we put up for you? Did you achieve all those numbers? You have something measurable that allows you to actually have a real conversation around renewing a contract or not if it doesn't work, rather than finger in the air and hope for the best. And will they give us that money? Ooh, I don't know. You know, uh, it's all gutsy feely stuff. That doesn't work anymore. It's it's almost as you paint that picture, it's very apparent that the idea of a brand enjoying brand or name awareness on a jersey is almost like a vanity project for the CEO of that company. Chairman's choice. <laughs> no, yeah, it, it has to have some kind of return on investment. But when you go into the depth of detail that you did, first of all, with O2 and then with the Bank of Ireland, like that's that's an incredible return on investment. But it also underlines the, the idea of activation and engagement where the customer becomes central to the entire network of operations. Yeah. And, and you know, the reality is it's it's easy for a brand to go with chairman for a, a, a sports organization or a music rights owner or somebody or a festival owner to go with the chairman's choice. It's the easiest thing in the whole wide world for the first couple of years because you sit back, you take the money, you make them feel special and warm and cuddly at a couple of events a year and tickety-boo. But then he might move on or the new CEO has come in and really wants to revisit the budgets and sees this thing that has no you know, real valuable uh, measurement against it and you're screwed. Yeah. Or uh, the chairman decides, now I'm, I'm done with that toy now, I'm going to move on to another toy. You're screwed because you've spent five years not activating the property, not engaging your customers, so then if you go to market again, or you have to go and renew it with these uh, with this brand, you've no measurement, you've no way of going, this has worked. Plus, a sponsor should be working with you in a way that helps you grow your brand. And we always love uh, sponsors amongst you who work with us on act great activations. Because when their brand, when they grow, we grow. And that's, that's, part of, that's how part of the relationship should always be. Uh, so chairman's choice is, is it's nice and easy and it's easy street for a while. And then it gets really difficult and, and then you don't renew the spot or whatever. 
the, the that journey from a commercial meeting or a strategic meeting where you identify uh, a list of prospects and taking them from taking it from making the first phone call to trying to persuade somebody on a telephone call or an email or through a referral that it's worth taking half an hour a meeting to getting through to activating that it's a long journey it's a long journey it is months uh, and in a couple of cases um and in one case even on on esports that i'm working on now with monster rugby it's been years um and you know you want to work with them. You know that you're, you share the right values. You know that they're a great brand that has really smart people and smart agencies doing wonderful activations and that they would work with you. And it's not just because one is red and the other is red or any of that nonsense. Well, it's not nonsense, but you know, it's, it's a nice fit, but it's about 2% of the reason you should get involved. Um, when, when, when you start looking at all those things, it's still can take years to find the right property or the right moment. You know, they may be going through a huge budget change or they may have a new CEO when your property that you've really pinpointed for them comes up or, 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 or. And it can take years. Um, you've just got to be patient. Um, and that's why I always say building relationships is important. Um, sometimes relationships don't work out and you just, You've got to take take the, the, the good with the bad, uh, or the bad with the good, rather. But, you know, the best relationships are those that you start over a period of time, you get to know each other, you get to know each other's values um, and your way of working. You then make a pitch or a work on an idea together. It comes to fruition. It delivers. The, there's always a challenge early in a sponsorship or a commercial partnership. There's always a wobble, but you've built a relationship, so the underpinning is strong. And then you get through that. Uh, and suddenly you're, you know, you're, you're, you're doing things together that are absolutely magic and really good fun. Um, and, you know, we have had that with so many of our partners in Munster over down through the years where we've had just really passionate people who believe in Munster, but also really brilliant people that we've been able to build very solid relationships with. Did you find that having worked for a brand, a global brand like O2, when you went to um, Thoman Park, that it was, you were siding with the brand, you were able to see their position much easier, you were able to get inside their head and have a better understanding of what they would need to make it work? Yeah, I did. Um, I, I, I was fortunate in that regard. Um, and it certainly made opening the doors to new brands easy early on. Because you know, through through the network and, and the marketing network and Ireland, I was able to, to 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 get to know people, you know, not knowing that I was going to be on the other side of the table trying to sell them something at some point in time or sell them a vision or build a relationship with them. But it certainly helped that I understood their their demands, where their budget was going, where the squeeze would be on at a certain time of the year, when was good to go to them, when was not good to go to them. Um, that helped. But even, you know, as, as the years went on and I became more of a sports side rather than a brand marketeer, um, I, was, I was fortunate that I, I've remained a member of the Marketing Institute uh, all these years. I go to their conferences every year. Um, I go to the awards. Um, I'm a judge of the awards. You know, that type of, 
it keeps me engaged and it keeps me listening to who's in the marketplace, who's spending, who's not, who's doing this, who's doing that, who's the new brand in town, who, where has that marketing director gone to? Because even in my new role with, with uh, in executive education and, and esports for months, so those two divisions are businesses that we've created, you still need to know what's going on and who's spending what, where and when and why. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I found that I haven't, thankfully, uh, drifted away at Touchwood. I haven't drifted away and, and lost the ability to have uh, relevant conversations. It's, it's vitally important for people on our side of the house, all who are selling all the time, to know and to be listening and reading the papers and reading the trade rags and just really getting your head around what's going on, why are people thinking the way they are, reacting the way they are, who's the mover, who's the shaker. Um, so, you know, I had, it, I had an advantage coming in, but I've had to work to maintain, to maintain that ability to be relevant. Yeah, the, the, there's, there's no doubt. Like it's, it's, a, it's a, a continuum, it's forever moving. And one of the things that um, dictates, or I wouldn't say dictates, but has an influence on um, what you do is what happens on the pitch. And you, you might remember we had this conversation. I certainly remember having this conversation with you when we were, I was working with Tyrone and trying to get a sponsor back in 2013 or 2012 or whenever it was. And, and you were saying how, how lucky you were to be able to bring potential brand partners and commercial partners to Thoman Park and do the presentation in the stadium and then have some of the big rugby guys walk in and or appear <laughs> on the screen or do the presentation on the big screens and so on. Um, you know, there's no doubt that you have a very powerful brand that would be of interest to a lot of big names, you know, and perhaps working with somebody as working for someone as high profile as Munster Rugby is arguably easier than trying to sell sponsorship for, I don't want to offend any sporting brands or oh, don't, don't, don't say any team. <laughs> I won't, no, I won't, no, I won't, but, but the profile. I'll be honest with you, Paul, um, I, I, I take your point um, and I am incredibly fortunate to work for Munster Rugby. I, I really am. I love Munster Rugby. I, as I said, like, you know, uh, when I first started socialising in Tralee uh, uh, as a young fella, uh, the pub that we all went to was the Mall in Tralee, which is owned by the O'Sullivans. And behind the walls, around the walls, were pictures of 78, 92 beating Australia, um, you know, stuff like that. Like Even in Tralee, like the Heartland, the GAA, like, and they were at Karen's Rallies Club when I was in Austin's Taxi or whatever, you know, for every Kerry picture, there was, a, a, it was Kerry or it was Munster. There was, the, that was the stuff on the walls in 78 and all that. So I'm really fortunate. On the flip side, with working with a larger organization comes greater expectation. Yeah. That the brand will open the doors for you. And it does. But with that comes an expectation to reach a higher target when you're selling a property or when you're pitching or whatnot. And yeah, having, you know, I did a pitch one time and Paul O'Connell um, played a very valuable role at the end. So we had a kind of a bit of tape at the end where Paul was genuinely training for a big game that weekend, had recorded a piece for us and spoke directly because we had Paul briefed on who was in the room and what was going, you know, and Paul was able to speak directly to them in a, in a very personable way. That's all fantastic. But go back a step. If you are team B who may not have the wide spread love and passion and 25,600 capacity stadium that Munster has, right? 
But if you're going to a sponsor that you truly believe likes you and will want to be with you, then you have your star in your team. It may not be uh, an earth-shattering uh, record uh, Irish captain or whatever, but they're the star of your team. So no matter the property, no matter the, the, the club you're in or wherever, you always have your heroes in that team. You always have your best player, your star striker, your whoever it is. And you should, you know, it doesn't matter. The values might be slightly, you know, slightly lesser because, you know, it's a different model for each club. But, you know, for every Paul, there's a captain in another club. There's another player. There's another guy, a kid who's coming through from the academy who's the best thing since sliced bread. And we want, and then the club, what, the feeling you're meant to engender in brands is a sense that you're able to unlock the magic dust for them. Yeah. Sponsorship has a certain element of magic dust to it. It may not always be what's written into the contract, the asset that's written into the contract. We were not given permission in the RF, by the RFU in our contract with O2 to have 300 names printed across the numbers on the backs of the jerseys. But we built up a great relationship and we went to them with a really smart, clever activity, uh, activation of it. Yeah, we're in for this. Let's go test it out take it up the side of a mountain with some fella in a couple of boots and rub them around and see if the letters come off. No, they didn't. That's go. So it's, it's about building that relationship and, and building the relationship with the brand to go, you know, we don't have the big star, but we have five brilliant guys here who are supporters we love, who will help you grow your business in these ways. That That's, um, I, I agree completely. Um, there was quite a conversation going on in GAA for this last for however long Dublin keep on winning the Sam Maguire, there'll always be the conversation. Sure, how can we come? How can we compete with that? Um, look at the money they get. Blah blah blah. You can fill in the blanks yourself, and you know yeah. you'd, you'd have probably been party to some of those conversations, or at least listening to the narrative. And um, I've always kind of held a view that if every county did better than they're currently doing, and never mind about Dublin the landscape would change and shift because it's very easy to say Dublin get it easy, but ultimately Dublin have always had more money than anybody else, always. But for 20 years, they weren't spending it. Yeah. They they were without an All-Ireland Championship for 19 years. I think it was from 95 until the- 95 to 2000 and whatever it was. Yeah, and, and, and then, then you take a look at all of the other constituent parts of that perfect storm. You had a body of players coming through that may never come through again at that time mm -hmm. under the guidance of Gilroy, Pillar, Pillar, Gilroy, and then Jim Gavin. And so all of these things happen. And it just so happens that the commercial wing of the Dublin GAA had a very clear blue wave plan. So yeah. it's always about being ready for those moments. And, um, I, I agree with you. I think that the that come with, with the name and the stature and the scale of brand that is Munster Rugby or Dublin GAA comes great responsibility, becomes greater expectation, and um, you know if you're at if you're at on top of Everest, Everest, your time your time limited on your on the top of Everest because you can't stay there forever. So you, you've got to work really hard. <laughs> On the way up and on the people way up. Man United. People thought Man United when they won seven and nine. Um, was it seven in a row and eight and ten or seven? seven I think, I think it was seven in a row, yeah. I think it was. Seven in a row. 
um, when they did that, um, and you know, there was these stars coming in every year, so it wasn't just the same team as the argument being made. And their sponsorship portfolio grew, but it wasn't, you know, everybody thought they'd, they'd reached their Everest, okay? And they thought they were unbeatable. And sure, look, you know, who watches the premiership? The numbers are dropping and la, 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 la. They'll never be caught. And they were caught. Mm-hmm. And Kerry were caught once upon a time. And Dublin, at some point in time, the look will run out. Now, I know there are journalists out there who've made the argument, and we're not going to get into this today. It's for a different time in a different forum with different people about the development money that has been set aside for, for Dublin. And look, it's understandable, but you've, you've got to have a really strong commercial engine for the GEA as a whole to help it fund all the communities it does. So, of course, we're going to take advantage of that opportunity to grow the game in Dublin. But Dublin's time at the top will peak. It will drop at some point in time and other teams will take over. And Dublin may win more frequently than they used, but that long run won't happen. That won't happen forever. Um, And the same monster were on top of the world. 2002, uh, 2000, we qualified for the European Cup final. Right through to 2000 and, good Lord, we're still in semi-finals. We haven't won it, but we've continued. Like in, in six of the eight years I've been in Munster, uh, Munster are five they Munster have been in semi-finals so we're always top four but it's not you know we want to win titles and you know but we're not winning the titles so like Dublin you know you compete more often but you won't win it all the time and that's and that's going to happen the, the, the thing is other other counties need to stop worrying about Dublin and worry about themselves a bit more and it's it's hard because people say well sure Dublin have all the businesses and all the sponsors even if you got one more sponsor for five grand, that will cover the physio cost for three months, which might make the difference between having three injuries and no injuries. And you never know. No, exactly. And I think something that's free, it doesn't cost anything to, to reevaluate your relationship with your existing sponsors. Yeah. You know, it doesn't cost you any money at all. And, it, and your ability to... Um, and I want to talk about value, if that's okay, because I think one of the, one of the things that that I've seen, and, and I don't I don't have the same experience as you for sort of longevity with those kind of brands. I was on I worked on properties on the other side of the fence for quite some time. Where you sit, where you sit now, and it was always like, well, what do we give them? You know, what what do, what do we what do we give them? And it was always from my point, well, what do they need? Let's start with what they need first of all, and then we'll try and surpass their expectations. But what 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 does value look like now, and uh, how has that morphed into whatever it is now? And how do you constantly deliver on that? Um, that's a really really good question. Um, and I, I was looking at uh, some data coming out of oh god, I can't remember which. American organization was about a week ago talking about the generational shift in sponsor access, sponsor rights, and the value that you that they derive from the sponsorship. Um, and, and to a certain point, the basics are still important. So brand positioning, uh, visibility of major stadia, all the, the 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 hygiene stuff, as we used to call it, no two, all the hygiene stuff is still necessary. That's the basics. Um, when I when I used to pitch to sponsors in when I was head of commercial in Munster, I never brought I brought a kind of a 
a set basic matrix. So, you know, X is the value of the property we're going to pitch to you. Y are the first round uh, uh, rights that you accrue from the sponsorship. But then we say, okay, you've expressed an interest and we've expressed some ideas around activation. And now we're at the conversation of the contract piece. What do you really want to do? Because that'll determine the rights that you need. And again, that goes back to, God bless Johnny and uh, Cal and Timmy and Devani. That was how we approached the uh, renegotiation with the RFU um, of the O2 contract in 2010 uh, into 2011. We actually said, well, guys, this is how we want to take the sponsorship over the next three to four years. And here are the rights that you've never sold before that, you, that we're going to create that don't exist. We're going to create them to own them to deliver value back in these ways. Now, that's part one. Part two, what does value look like? Value looks like uh, access, content, um, and data. So all the hygiene stuff is still there, the signage on the, back of the, the banners and the branding on the jersey and all those kind of things. But access... And by access, it's A, access to the customer in a way that is authentic and relevant and doesn't feel like being spammed, but also greater access to the, the, the team, the players, the backroom staff. Everybody wants a bit more because now they all have channels that they, it, 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 like sponsorship has created its own myriad of OTT channels that um, allow brands to directly communicate about players um, and the club with its customers. Um, and, and as a result, um, they want, you know, they want more, they want more access, they want closer access, they want private time with players and the whole lot. That's part of it. Now that's tricky because there's only a certain amount of, of that inventory available. And a lot of clubs are now beginning to look at how they monetize that additional non-match day content for their own platforms uh, and begin to sell it and monetize it. So that's, that's tricky, but brands want that. So that's how, that's the biggest change to be honest with you. Um, and then um, data for measurement, data and data for use and data for customer wins and data for measurement is the other big thing because brands now know, going back to my conversation with you at the start of this um, uh, cast, the reality is that brands now know how to measure the sponsorship more effectively, how to understand the ROI more effectively. And as a result, they need more data to really drive into that ROI. And they need to be able to measure. So then they need access to data through activations that you hadn't thought about before or whatever that is, to capture that data, to win over the customer, to be able to measure it. All oh, that cycle we spoke about earlier. So for me, they're the biggest things. Um, it's almost like the democratization of non-match day access to the squad. You know, a sponsor can make that available to as many people as they choose if it's in contract and all that. And therefore you don't have to pay Sky or BT or have a TV license or have bought it. This may be available on their digital channels at no cost to you. Yeah. So, you know, you're getting to determine what you view and when you view it and how you access the team in ways unimaginable 20 years ago. Something that's... So there are the three ways, I think. 
Just, I hope I hope that gives some view on the on the question. Oh, that's yeah, no, that's that's brilliant. Um, has has te technology um, firmly made itself as your friend right now, or? Oh, yeah. Always, always, always. Technology to me was always a friend. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not a I'm not a, a techno wizard or anything of the sort. But to me, uh, and this goes back to my time in Vodafone. Um, we used to run text to win competitions the night of the All-Stars, for example, when we sponsored the All-Stars. And we used to run a text to win competition uh, with Foundation, I think it was. And we used to be able to collate the data back and be able to go, okay, you know, Optin was different in those days. So, you know, they, they're by, by playing the competition, you consented to receive communication from that kind of stuff going back 17 years ago. And even then, it was about how do we use the new stuff that's going on to capture data, um, to capture the mood, to capture a sense of what people want, and to be able to communicate easier with them. Um, Brian O'Driscoll, Paul O'Connell set up their Twitter accounts for because uh, O2, who were their brand partner for both Brian and Paul as ambassadors, wanted them to begin to be more accessible but be able to communicate more freely with people if they wanted um, and also begin to support some of the products that we were rolling out at the time through their accounts when you know paid sponsorship was very different that beast on, on twitter and all that you look at how many of our hundreds of thousands brian and paul now have um i just show look this is this is a way for you to build your brand and be in control of your own voice now and when you retire and that was the pitch we made to them but I remember um, at the time I had no money to fill. We did a, a live broadcast of Ireland, Australia, in the Rugby World Cup at the O2 because we were sponsoring the O2 and we had free access. So we had free access to one event or two events a year. We decided we were going to show the Ireland, Australia match. I had to pay for money to get a huge giant screen in and an MC and, a, you know, kind of a guys on the coach chatting about the game type stuff. That was a very small cost, but that was the only money I had. So I couldn't advertise it. So we were about to uh, release through priority ticketing. Remember priority ticketing for the venue where you can? Yeah. We were going to release that to all two customers registered who like rugby. But then we said, Brian, would you mind just tweeting out that this is going to happen and tickets go on sale tomorrow at nine o'clock? Yeah, no problem. We were sold out before the RFU used their Twitter channel to announce the same event. Wow. Well, it's been a big advertising event. I just got Brian onto Twitter years earlier. There, there are times when, um, you know, you can, you can create value in the most unlikely ways yeah. by just being smart around the digital tools that are there and being smart around the data that's available to you. And embracing digital Twitter, 2009 or 2011, it was there, but it wasn't the behemoth it is now. Um, you know, we, we, all these things, we, we had great fun with them, great fun. Any opportunity I had, we did all, remember um, Brian and Paul, you'll, you'll remember this, Brian and Paul had this Fits and Giggles uh, video once upon a time where they got the, all the bloopers for a campaign. They got that, they were an hour recording three or four lines of footage. It was great crack. Um, and we recorded it and then we put it on. Uh, people were allowed. Remember when broadband dongles used to be a plug into your Early, computer? Yeah, yeah. 
but it was also a memory stick. It had a very, it had like a, you know, an eight meg or a 16 or a 32 meg card inside it, as well as being a dongle. So we loaded a couple of thousand of these with Brian and Paul's footage and sold it as a rugby product. Mm-hmm. It sold out. It was great crack. We embrace like, this is new technology. We're selling it. Put the guys on um, and, and record. And it was great fun. So I've always embraced technology because it provides, if you, if you adapt early to a technology, it provides a low cost way to reach, um, to, to, to reach um, uh, influencers. You should always get the early influencers onto technology. And if you yeah. can identify what, what the technology is, you know, you'll have the influencers behind you and, and you'll be on the same wavelength as them. And that all, uh, that, that, it provides a real cost, uh, cost saving way of going about things. And I'm always about saving costs. It, it, it takes a lot of boxes. It's always, it's always important to be on the, the right side of that bell curve if you want to save money, because if you're on the hump of it, you're just pumping money out day in, You're day paying out. money out the door to an agency for stuff you should have been doing yourself three years ago. Correct, yeah. But, you know, within all that, and one of the things I'm conscious of time here, Amanda, as well, and um, one of the things that I did want to talk to you about was Munster uh, very evidently have got high-performance credentials over everything they do on the pitch. I'm guessing from speaking to you without without having to guess actually that it's not just high performance on the pitch. It's something that permeates the entire organization. Yeah, it does. Um, sorry, excuse the noise there. Um, it does permeate the whole organization. And to, to the extent that um, we don't have a we don't have a trademark on, on great leadership or great high performance uh, you know, our culture is in some ways is, is no different to other organizations that have won great tournaments down through the years. But we have produced uh, an uncanny number of leaders down through the years of, of teams and whatnot. Um, and we've produced guys who perform at a level far and beyond what's expected of them. And about three years ago, um, we our commercial board at the time chaired by Sir Nelson Fitzgerald, now chaired by Patrick Coveney, um, they said, can you create businesses that are not reliant on match day performance? And I know you said this earlier. So I went off into the ether as head of commercial and created the, an executive education um, business, um, the High Performance Leadership Program with University of Limerick. And we're selling it and it's attracted great blue chip companies and, and great customers and the experience. It's a two and a half day holistic view around high performance, energy management, fitness to perform, personal balance and alignment and authentic leadership. So those, those, those four pillars. And it allows you to, as a senior, as a senior executive or a C-suite executive, to, to really understand the strengths and weaknesses of your performance physically, emotionally, and as a leader. And how can we help you improve your performance in all those areas? Um, and, and, and what we did, we took the learnings from rugby. We stripped up most of the rugby talk because we didn't want it to make it so rugby heavy that it was going to put people off coming on the program. Um, so, you know, we stripped out all the, the unnecessary rugby stuff. And we created a program that takes the essence of what high performance is for Munster 
Um, and we do believe in the power of holistic higher performance and understanding all of the, the various aspects of what make you perform at a higher level right across the organization. I just happened to make a business out of it then. That's a great idea. It's yeah. fun. I, I get to sit with people who are senior leaders in organizations, uh, some famous and some up and coming that have, that are, are being really asked and have signed up to strip themselves back in a number of ways, physically their scores and their fitness levels, nutrition wise, psychologically they're assessed, they're assessed in terms of their uh, leadership style by family, friends, community. So it's a really rigorous dig into your scores and, and, and your performance as an individual across all aspects of, of your life. And then we help you piece together when I'm building this back up, how do I make myself be better at the parts where I scored low? And it's, it's transformational. And I'm not just saying that it is, and they've said it. And it's lovely to share that time with those people when they're going through that because there's a vulnerability about them, uh, about people who come in the program that, that brings great openness to the conversations that we have uh, and a really strong bond. And I just, I love it. And I miss it now during COVID, but we'll get there again. There's, a, um, I, there's one question I wanted to, to sure. well, there's two questions I want to finish on. The first one is a, is a quote that I'd heard somewhere from someone some time ago. So there's absolutely no authority attached to this and could have come from Donald Trump. I'm not really sure. Um, sp sport is immune to recession. Okay. So at some point somebody had said that to me and, and I, I, I kind of thought, well, sport is fairly resilient um, across all manners of recession, but the, the, the spotlight is firmly on sport right now in terms of how important it is to our cultural, social and emotional well-being and how important fans are to all of that, to making all of it happen for revenue, for, for feel-good factor, for celebration, for bread and circus, whatever, whatever, whatever you want to, to, any angle you look yeah. at, that's the case. How do you see the next year for, for rugby in Ireland? Uh, it's a great question. I don't think, I, I disagree with the quote, by the way, uh, in, a, in a nice way, but I do, I, I disagree that, Sport is um, almost agnostic of, of uh, recessions and whatnot. Uh, sport, the pandemic has proven that. Yeah. Um, like there are any number of sports from the richest in the world through to the up and coming sports that are hemorrhaging cash and in real trouble if this continues well on into 2021. So that's, that's there. And the era of sugar daddies just buying out or oligarchs just buying out a huge club or buying out all of a club or a huge chunk of a club. Those days are largely well and done as well, you know. Uh, you're more likely now to get an investment fund who will want to work a project really hard or a club or whatever really hard. Where do I see sport going over the uh, rugby over the next couple of years, particularly the next 12 months? I don't know when we're going to see full houses. Um, I think you'll see, hopefully, if, if everybody keeps washing their hands and social distancing and wearing a mask, I think we'll see something like what Ulster are doing uh, next weekend with a thousand people at the game in Kingsman Stadium. Um, I think we'll begin to see that in the new year. I don't see how you have a full crowd in the stadium until at least the Six Nations, but possibly summertime. Mm. So that's, and, and, and still, Bums on seats drive the bulk of the revenue. Okay. 
What it's doing, though, is it's beginning um, not just rugby, but all sport. And I, I call this the democratization of, of a viewing experience. So where all the stuff was behind paywall, slowly but surely, there's this hybrid model of paywall, uh, free to air and over the top broadcasting beginning to take place for an awful lot of sports. And I think that will come to rugby over time. And it'll just depend. The product you want will be determined by how much you're willing to pay and how many camera angles you get and, you know, all that kind of stuff will all come about uh, when, when, when people are, are able to choose how they view the game much more easily than they are now. And I, I genuinely believe that while there is a fragmentation in society, that sport is playing a role in beginning to bring uh, clarity to people and bring people back together. Um, and that sport is doing it in a way that it allows everybody to begin to engage with big moments that give matches the whole lot again, but on their terms. That's the other thing. I think in rugby, you're going to see, um, I think CVC, who are now investors in uh, Pro 14 Rugby and Celtic Rugby, um, and have been a phenomenal support of the club so far and already have invested in, in um, the Premiership Rugby in England. I think you'll see more industrial investors begin to come into this space because rugby has a huge potential to grow um, and it will grow. And if the right people are investing the right amount uh, and supporting that growth, I think there'll be definite uh, returns for them as well as for you know the area or the region or wherever that they um that they that they that they've invested in, um, so that's I, I you know I see I see a real ability for for more organisations to be part owned or whatnot by by uh, by industry investors, and then technology as I said broadcast wise is just going to democratise the experience entirely. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. One one final question. I, I'm very pushed my luck on the time thing here. So, uh, we're sitting here as as two as a as a Kerry and a Tyrone fan. Do you think disappointed with the way the season has ended this year? Yeah, it's um, look. I'm delighted there's a football championship first and foremost, and we got knocked out, and there's no back door. Is really hard to take, mm. especially when you've a young Kerry team that is as talented. As the, as the Kerry squad are. But Cork were phenomenally well prepped, phenomenally physical, got in our faces, caused a lot of uh, guys to, to, to really be under enormous pressure during the game. And 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 that rattled us and, and didn't let us to take our points, you know. Having said that, um, I think Dublin are beatable. I don't think the 22-point hampering of Leash uh, achieves much. But I think Dublin... I, I think there is a Donegal or a, a, a Mayo or a Cork or a Tipperary or a Cavan. One of them is going to take on Dublin. And I think one of them might win and this might be the year. And if not this year, then I think it's coming very shortly. Sorry to see Mickey go. Um, I shared um, a phenomenal um, all-star tour with Mickey and the late Michaela Gord of Mersinner. Um, I, I shared the all-star tour with them and a lot of the guys and there was good fun I had, and I had a lot of time for Mickey, and I got to know him a bit at the time. Um, and look, 
there's only two ways a manager goes out on their terms or they're gone. And Mickey, I think, has had, uh, you know, a mixture of both, shall we say. Um, and I'm glad that he was able to call it once it became apparent that that was going to happen. Um, but look, uh, you know, there's some great talent in Tyrone. I think there's huge opportunities for you guys going forward. But Mickey will certainly be missed and, and that'll be hard uh, ship to, to turn around that quickly. There's no, there's no doubt about that. I think uh, when the dust settles, probably at the start of next season or the end of next season, we'll truly realise what we had uh, for all those years. And I think he, he, he was he did drive the bus out of town. He was the one that made the decision. And I, I'm, I'm thankful that that was the case for him because his legacy yeah. needs to remain in such a way that we just simply don't forget how... Um, how incredibly gifted as a leader he was. He might have some good players at his disposal, but you know, other other managers have a great players and turned them into bad players. And he took oh, two he, was, he was incredible and yeah. it was from well his retirement. There's a lot of men are from Armagh who are saying at the weekend jokingly that they would be happy to take him on Monday morning. <laughs> so um I don't think he'll travel I, I don't somehow see Mickey doing that. No. <laughs> and by the way, Kieran's Kieran's ploughing a great furrow right now with Armagh, and I'm delighted for him. You know, he's 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 gone through a lot of hard work in in Kildare and in uh, Armagh, but he's coming good. And you know, if it's not this, it'll be over the next couple of years. There is going, to, I think, Armagh are going to 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 do something. You know, you have to be playing first division football to be challenging for any silverware. Any meaningful silverware has got to be in, in Division One, and that's where I think Cork and Tipperary. I think Cork and Tipperary, and I love Cork. And by the way, they're they're in my you know this is my parish now. I live in Cork, but I do I, I genuinely think um, that's why Donegal, even though Donegal uh, lost to us in the last round, uh, Mayo, even though they've gone down, and Dublin, even though they finished my table, um, I think it's I think it's between the three of them. Um, and honestly, I would love to see Mayo on it. I, if only it would shut them up I for really a would. I, I, I just, I'd like to. See. I, I would too. I would. It, I, it might. It won't. It won't. They fill that role so well now. But, but if they're going to do it anywhere, it'll be this year, you know. So, um, and uh, thanks very much. That's been that's been really good. I really enjoyed that, and um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll watch out for the monster for the rest of the year and see how they get on but i wish you well uh, on and off the field so look thanks very much and hopefully we'll get talking again pleasure paul thank you very much <laughs>